All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you here uh, from New York City in Queens, uh, the 19th day of May, 2020. Um, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I want to invite you to keep your questions and comments, whatever they may be. Uh, send them along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number for taylor at gmail.com. And we do want to thank our sponsors because without them, there would be no show. Today's sponsors are RN Resources, Great Bear Resources, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, and Sitka Gold Corp. Before I get to today's show, let me pass along a few thoughts of my own. Michael Oliver uh, is not with us this week, uh, but I'd like to pass along a thing or two that he had to say uh, in his weekend missive to his paid subscribers uh, regarding gold and silver. Michael said that gold is probably the most important market to be focused on now. Many implications, he suggested. And let me just quote a couple of things that Michael said. Uh, First of all, he said, uh, and I quote, Gold has remained stout since the late summer 2018 lows, with teasing quick sell-offs that fool the majority. And this trend persisted, whether U.S. stocks were up or down. And despite the dollar remaining quietly firm, MSA has warned those who are fearful of a weak stock market causing gold to trend down that they will be fooled by that false assumption. Similarly, with a constant fear of continued steady to firm dollar. Looking back, momentum registered two major breakouts, and you would need to see Michael's charts to be able to see uh, with clarity what he's talking about. But then he said, nothing since that has altered that fact nor momentum's direction. We now offer one last buy trigger level, this one based on quarterly momentum. Trade up to 18 19 and 50 cents this quarter, and you can consider that MSA's last gold buy trigger, that that will be MSA's last gold buy trigger. That is 1819.50. And then Michael continued, he said, we suspect any further gains by gold will be dramatic, sizable, and sudden, not a continuation of the arm wrestling yet persistent uptrend of the past two years. End of quote. Regarding silver, Michael has uh, also, what he has to say, should gladden the hearts of the silver bulls. In his May 3rd weekend report, Michael defined two monthly momentum breakout levels 
those trigger numbers were $15.20 and $15.55. The May 7th action engaged those buyer, those buy triggers, and the launch for silver was ignited. And I quote Michael, he said, Price has since also achieved a key level, namely breaking back above last month's high at $16.30. By clearing the $16.30 level, silver punched back above that resistance and in Michael's view uh, is now rapidly heading back uh, to the $19 level. But he doesn't think that uh, set of prior highs, either side of 19, will halt the advance. Instead, annual momentum argues, Michael says, that reaching there again will likely engage uh, the final trigger for silver. Michael noted that a trade above $19.42 this month is a massive annual momentum structural breakout. Michael expects that this silver surge, uh, especially if it tags that annual number soon, which he fully expects it will, will rapidly drive silver into the very upper 20s, and perhaps there it will want to pause, congest, before moving higher from that level. So uh, regarding the gold shares versus gold, Michael's work also revealed that the shares are now getting the upper hand over gold bullion. Well, there isn't much to dislike uh, if you're a gold or silver bull from what Michael has to say, but that said, I would like to comment on a question from a listener to this show named John, who is an ex-scientist, and he admits to not being well-versed in things financial. But paraphrasing John, uh, he is concerned that even if your gold shares rise dramatically, their price is denominated in dollars. So when you sell, what good does that do if you're going to own something that isn't worth very much and is declining in value dramatically uh, as the dollar is rapidly losing value? And that, I believe, will be the case given the trillions of dollars that is being uh, printed and created out of thin air by the Federal Reserve and other central banks. Uh, but to that, I would answer John by saying you don't have to hold dollars. You can take the dollars from the sale of your gold stocks and buy gold, and you can do so in the form of an ETF like OUNZ, O-U-N-Z which, as Axel Merck pointed out last week uh, when he was on the show, you can easily take the you can take delivery of gold that is backed by that by your uh, shares of OUNZ if you wish to do so. And by the way. Uh, Axel Merck will be with us in the second half of today's show, and uh, I might ask him to briefly comment on the process for taking delivery again, uh, because I think it's a very important issue in this day when we can expect that the uh, fiat currencies are going to lose value very rapidly. I, I would mention that, of course, when you sell your gold shares, you will have a tax event, unless, of course, you're holding them in your, uh, in, in your IRA. Uh, in that case, you won't need to face a tax event until you start taking your money out uh, in your retirement. Another listener named Steve, who subscribes to my letter and to Chen's newsletter, asked if I would recommend a third newsletter writer that covers the gold mining sector. And I could do so, but it is important uh, to know who to recommend. Uh, it's it's it really impossible to know how, who to recommend unless I know a person's investment objectives. Any of the newsletter writers I work with at the Metals Investor Forum, like Eric Coffin, Gwen Preston, Joe Masmeter, John Kaiser, Greg McCoach, uh, Brian London, and of course Chen is there as well, 
They're all very good, but each have their own unique investment styles and focus. For example, some are more risk-averse than others, while some offer the 10-bagger-type long shots uh, that certainly inherently have more risk. But uh, what I should actually do sometime, I believe, and, and I actually have had some of them on my show in the past, but perhaps have my colleagues from the Metalist Investor Forum come on this show and explain their in, their investment objectives and uh, share that with you because I think that would be valuable advice. It's important uh, to subscribe to somebody uh, whose perspective is similar to your own uh, so that you're comfortable with, uh, uh, with their philosophy. Moving on to today's show, I've titled the show, Can You Prosper During This Gargantuan Economic Decline? Axel Merck returns and Lynn Alden appears for the first time on this show. When gold was removed from the monetary system in 1971, it opened the floodgates of money creation by a, by a legal, though I would posit immoral, counterfeiting operation headed by the Federal Reserve Bank and basically all, not basically, all other central banks around the world. They all create money out of nothing. Although, of course, the U.S. the U.S. and the Federal Reserve, having the world's reserve currency, can do so more aggressively and more extensively than any other country in the world at this point in time, unless that changes, and that may be a topic that we'll broach this afternoon as well. In any event, the result of this massive money creation uh, has been con- uh, consistent currency destruction and credit bubbles that are blown up to the point where the laws of nature stops, such as in 2008, 2009, when the wheels fell off the credit expansion because the central bankers push things to the point where it breaks down. And then what we get then with with a new creation, another cycle of money creation, is a massive transfer of wealth from the productive sector of the economy, the middle class that actually produces things that uh, add value to our lives, to the people that control the monetary system, namely the Federal Reserve, the banks, and the government. So we go from the productive sector to the parasitic sector, and ultimately we're all the worse off for it. Well, even before the coronavirus pandemic wrecked havoc on global economies, we were in for another economic recession bound to be bigger than that of 2008-2009, simply because the credit bubble that was blown by the Federal Reserve after 2008 was the biggest yet. So that when the bubble burst, when it was bound to burst, the losses in financial assets are certainly bound to be the biggest yet, even larger than the catastrophic declines of 2008-2009. So far, we haven't seen that, of course. The equity markets are holding up quite well. But with the sudden event of COVID-19, job losses are now more extreme than anything ever seen in America, including that of the Great Depression. But remember Ben Bernanke, who has always claimed that the Great Depression was caused simply because Fed chairmen at that time uh, were not as smart as he is, didn't respond quickly enough, he says, that they didn't respond quickly enough and, in fact, started raising rates when they should have been lowering them. Well, Ben thinks he has all the answers, right? So he's exploded the balance sheet, the bank's balance sheet, the federal bank's balance sheet, and we have this massive bubble that is now breaking down again you know, a little more than 10 years later, um, 12 years later, and it's breaking down again before COVID-19. And we'll get into the reasons I say that, and Lynn Alden uh, will certainly help us understand that as well during the second segment of today's show. Of course, 2020 
uh, is uh, 2020 hindsight is wonderful. It allows you to to uh, point fingers at others and not focus on the best way to move forward. What Dr. Bernanke and all Federal Reserve economists fail to recognize is that the Fed is the manufacturer of these bubbles and is therefore responsible for the massive losses suffered by average people and smaller businesses to the benefit, at least to the the redistribution of wealth towards Wall Street and their pernicious government bedfellows. Likewise, a parasitic Uh, Likewise, as parasitic governments grow at the expense of the productive sector of our economy, when the Fed starts blowing the next bubble, uh, that uh, seems to be the cycle that we're still on. Uh, We shall see if it continues on uh, once again as this bubble nears its end and and finally comes to its conclusion, aided and abetted by COVID-19 for sure. Um, Indeed, um, as we enter this this section, uh, this, this decline, um, there, there are many who believe, some who believe, uh, that America is, is reaching its fourth turning um, in American history. The other turnings, the other fourth turnings in America's history so far, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, and World War II. And so many are believing that what we are facing now with COVID-19 and the destruction of our monetary system uh, is akin to and is... is uh, Uh, as uh, significant as those other major turning points in American history. Uh, What we hope to accomplish on this show is to provide some help in turning these impending hard times into good times simply by alerting you to what is likely to lie ahead of us in the future. No one, of course, except God Almighty knows for sure what is lying ahead of us, and I would also suggest that he has everything under his control But that, of course, is a spiritual element that everyone has to uh, decide for themselves. In any event, uh, when we come back from our first commercial break, Lynn Alden will join us to provide her insights into uh, the economic forces behind the surface uh, in an effort to try to help us prepare as best we can uh, for the difficult times that most certainly seem to lie ahead. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Lynn Alden right after our first commercial break. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time, Lynn Alden. Lynn's background lies in the intersection of engineering and finance. She holds a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and a master's degree in engineering management with a focus on engineering economics and financial modeling. She oversees the finances and day-to-day operations of an engineering facility um, and uh, has been performing investment research for over 15 years in various public and private capacities. Her work has been uh, editorially featured uh, or cited on uh, at, at Forbes, uh, Business Insider, Market Watch, Times, Money, Magazine, The Daily Telegraph, The Street, CNBC, U.S. News and World Reports, Kiplinger, Huffington Post, and elsewhere. And she is also a regular contributor to Seeking Alpha, Fed Week, and Elliott Wave Trader. Lynn's logical thinking as an engineer rings through to her analysis of the driving forces behind markets and her work to explain what was driving the repo markets last September, and that is uh, really what has alerted me to her excellent work. In fact, my friend Eric Coffin at the Metals Investor Forum first sent me an email telling me of Lynn's uh, work, and uh, which I have been following on a regular basis since then. And you can keep up with her thinking on a regular basis by following her on Twitter, which I do. And you can uh, and could, you can and most certainly should go to her website, lynnalden.com. That's Lynn, L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N.com, where she provides research and strategy covering stocks, options, precious metals, international equities, and alternative investments with a specialization in asset allocation. And Lynn publishes uh, a newsletter every six weeks. I'm looking at one that she just uh, she put out in March titled uh, crashing down through John Exter's pyramid, and we've certainly talked about John Exter on this show in the past. And then in May, a letter that just came out this morning, hot off the press, titled First Liquidity, Then Solvency. Well, those are certainly topics of interest to me, and I'm, I'm sure uh, with many listeners to this show. So let me suggest that, again that you go to Lynn Alden, L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N.com, to sign up for her free newsletter. And Lynn also puts out research Uh, posts from time to time. They keep track of ongoing market dynamics, and one of those that she recently published was titled Quantitative Easing, MMT and Inflation Deflation. That is really what I want to talk to Lynn today about. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Lynn. It's really great to have you with us. No problem. Thanks for having me. It's really good to have you. Um, First time again to to speak with you after I've read your work uh, first. Uh, It's really a pleasure. Lynn, um, in that article that you wrote, that special article, Quantitative Easing, MMT and Inflation Deflation, uh, you provided illustrations showing how our federal government traditionally funded itself. It would fund itself by way of borrowing from its citizens or and then expanding to borrow from, from uh, citizens of other countries. Can you contrast those traditional methods of financing with quantitative easing, uh, which was put in play after the 2008 financial crisis? Yeah, sure. So the article outlines four different models of government financing. Um, and then the first one is the more traditional one, which is domestic government borrowing. So in addition to taxing from the population and spending it back into the economy, they also borrow from the, the uh, citizens and the firms within the country as treasury securities. And then they use that as well to, to finance their government spending. Uh, and that's, you know, it's self-contained. 
and it's an old system because you can do it with you can do it with fiat currency, you can do it with gold. Um, that's you know the traditional way that governments finance themselves. And then model two is international government borrowing. So the United States um, also borrows uh, from foreign creditors uh, such as Japan, China, uh, European nations, um, and that's that's been a big part of our financing uh, for the past 40, 50 years, uh, especially with the world reserve currency. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, back in the 80s, that was our foreign debt, like held by foreigners, was about 5% of our GDP. But now that's up to over 30% of GDP. Mm -hmm. So we've increasingly relied on borrowing uh, from foreigners, which is mainly Mm -hmm. that we send them dollars through trade deficits, and then they recycle those dollars back into uh, borrowing our treasury securities, which we then deploy back into our economy. Uh, mm-hmm. And then uh, the third option, which is when a government runs out of actual lenders, like either domestic or international, um, that's what we're seeing more today where uh, they employ quantitative easing. So the central bank essentially creates dollars and then uses those dollars to buy treasury securities. So um, uh, you can think of the treasury and, and uh, central bank as you know theoretically separate, but in that sense they start working together. Uh, mm-hmm. Where, uh, and then the fourth model uh, is is uh, being more discussed, and that's the, an MMT model, which essentially takes that third model and more unifies the two uh, between the treasury and the central bank, so that the central bank is more fully monetizing deficits and uh, not really worrying about running large deficits, and that's kind of what we're seeing today. That sounds uh, that sounds kind of adventurous. I I, I wonder how how that's going to work out. I it, it, I want to get to the, the massive borrowings that the uh, that the U.S. is facing right now, with all that's going on, uh, even before uh, uh, even before the current coronavirus situation. It looked pretty ominous to me, uh, but more so now. But I, I would like to Lynn. I would like to go to this repo crisis issue that I mentioned. Back in September 2019, when it reared its ugly head, um, and this was indicating problems, I like to call it, or refer to it as kind of the canary in the coal mine, suggesting there were some issues, some real underlying issues that were in play that weren't really visible until we suddenly saw a 10% spike, I think very momentarily, uh, in September 2019 in the repo market. Uh, Can you explain Maybe explain to us what the repo market is and what caused that spike in interest rates. What were the underlying causes for that? Sure. The repo market is um, an overnight lending uh, system between banks and financial institutions uh, where they uh, borrow in exchange for providing safe collateral, uh, such as treasuries. Mm-hmm. And normally that's a very low rate. It's a, it's a very boring and uh, liquid market. But um, in mid-September of 2019, that rate suddenly spiked to, as you said, about 10% uh, overnight, uh, and it you know was something like 2% before. So it just was a mm-hmm. massive spike. I haven't seen one of those since uh, 2008. And uh, at the time, there were kind of two camps. One camp was the more mainstream camp, which was, oh, it's not a big deal. It's a technical issue. Um, it's, it's due to corporate uh, seasonal tax payments. It'll resolve quickly. And then the other camp was you know worrying that there's a, a major bank collapse somewhere or some sort of party wasn't being trusted. My analysis generally kind of focused in the middle between those two extremes and showed that it was mainly a treasury oversupply problem. So since uh, 
the end of 2014, when QE3 ended, uh, U.S. banks, large banks, were filled with about 15% cash levels as a percentage of assets. And they also had about 15% of their assets in treasuries. And then uh, primary dealers, one of their jobs is they have to bid at auction for treasuries. And then uh, they generally resell those treasuries uh, to uh, the rest of the world and to other buyers. Uh, but starting uh, after Q3, uh, QE3 ended, uh, the dollar became strong and foreigners were no longer really buying treasuries uh, at the scale they had been. And so uh, we kind of reverted to that first model of financing where the domestic economy was lending treasuries, uh, mm -hmm. buying treasuries, lending to the federal government. And we actually saw banks become minor, uh, major financiers of the mm -hmm. deficit. So uh, over the past five years, they drew down their cash levels from 15% all the way down to 7%. And mm -hmm. their treasury securities went up from 15% to over 21% of their assets. Mm -hmm. uh, but the problem with that is right during the week of the repo crisis, uh, they hit their lowest cash levels as a percentage of assets since the global financial crisis, which was about 7%. And so essentially, banks were uh, being forced to buy at auction treasuries, but then mm -hmm. unable to uh, readily sell them, uh, particularly T-bills on the secondary market. So they were getting mm -hmm. their cash levels were getting crowded out by treasuries. And that's why uh, even before this, this COVID-19 crisis, uh, back in, in the autumn of uh, 2019, the Federal Reserve had to come in and start printing dollars to just buy treasuries outright and to start monetizing government debt. Mm -hmm. And so you had the you had the specter of massive borrowings by uh, by the United States. I mean, Donald Trump has not been a uh, anything like a traditional Republican. He's been spending, some would say, like a drunken sailor, uh, spending like crazy. Has no limits. Uh, the foreigners then were stepping. We're not. We're not coming forward to buy treasuries. You're, you're, uh, I know you're suggesting that there was a, a relationship there with a stronger dollar. When the dollar is stronger vis-a-vis -vis other, uh, other fiat currencies, uh, the foreigners have tended to stay away. And then when it gets weak, they come in and buy. Do you think that's something we can count on in the future, that they'll be back, that the foreigners will be back if the dollar gets weak? Uh, that's uncertain. It's possible that we've saturated our international lending base at this point. Uh, we've had three major dollar cycles since uh, 1971. Uh, so the sample size is pretty small. We have yeah. a sample size of three. So it's hard okay. to say what's going to happen on the fourth yeah. cycle. But uh, over the past three cycles, that has what happened. So it seems to me, I mean, Stephen Roach back in 2004, he was an economist with Morgan Stanley. I used to read him faithfully. I picked out something he wrote in 2004 the other day I found in my files, and he was warning that the United States was living beyond its means. It was borrowing too much from foreigners, and, um, and, and it had to stop it. It had to stop its consumption and start financing itself. It seems to me that this is the underlying problem, though, isn't it? Uh, Lynn, that the, that the United States has been living beyond its means for so long, um, and now comes along COVID-19, um, it seems almost impossible. I mean, how, how are we going to ever finance this enormous trillions upon trillions of dollars that are being spent now to try to, to keep the ship afloat? How, are we, how is this going to work itself out? Yeah, so in earlier decades, um, uh, debt as a percentage of GDP was smaller. So whenever mm -hmm. foreigners weren't uh, buying as quickly, it was easy for domestic sources of buying to take over. Uh, mm -hmm. But now that uh, debt, uh, even before the crisis, was over 100% of GDP uh, and foreigners were not really buying, uh, that left the Fed as the only real uh, buyer of treasuries, which they do so by creating dollars. So mm -hmm. we're 
as far as I can see now, we're kind of in the phase where the Federal Reserve has to create dollars to buy Treasury securities. Uh, now that you know, there could be months where they can they can get away with less of that, and we can go back to actual buying. Um, but uh, for the most part, uh, with deficits this big, the Federal Reserve is going to be the primary buyer uh, for probably quite a while. And why then would we go from QE to MMT? What would be the advantage? Why would the why would the powers that be do that? Well, I wouldn't. I'm not sure I call it an advantage, but it's more just like a, a pointing out what people are, are discussing these days, which is essentially um, trying to find ways to get money to the public uh, more readily than uh, these previous uh, mechanisms have. So, for example, if you look at QE from uh, the Great Financial Crisis. Most of that went into recapitalizing the banks. It didn't really get to the people. Right. Uh, whereas now uh, we're in a situation where the people are the ones that are um, uh, under threat from this virus. So there are a lot of political efforts to try to get uh, more money to them, uh, and that could that it's a different type of QE essentially than what we mm-hmm. saw uh, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, akin to maybe helicopter money or something like that. You might. You might say? Essentially, yeah. I mean, the, the $1,200 checks that uh, many mm-hmm. Americans received earlier this year were an initial version of that, and so are um, extended uh, unemployment benefits. Mm-hmm. Well, in your article, you uh, you laid out your thinking about you know how this could play out. Uh, you mentioned John Exter's uh, inverted pyramid in one of your articles that I referred to. Uh, you know, I've, I've known, actually have a little bit of a contact uh, to John Exter through a friend of mine who married his daughter. But so I've heard a lot about John Exter over the years, um, and um, really quite a remarkable man uh, for sure. But he was always a deflationist. Um, and you're in your article that we're talking about now. You I mean inflation or deflation? It's it's an ongoing discussion. You can certainly see the deflationary pressures mounting with massive unemployment and you know and, and bankruptcies and everything else that's, that's bound to uh, start appearing here but which way do you think it's going to work its way out you you talk about it in the article and, and frankly because because we don't have enough time to do justice uh, to your thoughts on this uh, really people should go to your website and read this article and other things that you write but maybe just give us a summary with the three minutes we have left here Lynn, to give us an idea of what your thought process is on how this might resolve itself. How, how, what will be the outcome of this seemingly disastrous uh, situation we're in? Sure, yeah. Over the past four decades, we've had a very strong disinflationary trend. So we've had uh, lower and lower levels of uh, inflation, um, at least consumer price inflation, everyday goods. You know, there's different ways to mm-hmm. measure it. So there's sure. different um, discussions on exactly how you know, how much inflation has changed, but generally it's been a more uh, deflationary trend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, due to rising debt, it's due to uh, aging demographics, a uh, variety of reasons. But once you hit the zero bound, which we're at now, and you start kind of relying on just uh, massive increases in the monetary supply, um, my uh, analysis points to, you know, we still are at near-term price pressure because, mm-hmm. uh, especially in discretionary goods. So as essential goods, we're already seeing some inflation, but for mm-hmm. discretionary goods, like buying new cars or, you know, buying other large uh, discretionary purchases, uh, you know, this year we're probably looking at uh, a pretty significant deflation. But uh, going forward, uh, inflation is definitely a far uh, more likely outcome uh, over the next several years, in my view. Mm-hmm. And you also follow, certainly pay a lot of attention to the precious metals uh, as, a, as a way to protect yourself. Would you like to comment on that? 
briefly? Uh, yeah. So uh, in the current cycle, uh, uh, I started adding uh, gold, silver, and uh, gold stocks to my portfolio in um, about Q3 of 2018. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and I continue to hold them as a pretty important segment of a portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is your your personal portfolio. Do you? Uh, I guess your newsletter you provide people can get a pretty good idea of what your thoughts are along these lines on an ongoing basis, right? If they sign up for it. Yeah, I provide a model portfolio that I also put real money into just to kind of track it along with the readers. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you so much. I, I, we should have you on again sometime, hopefully, to discuss uh, in more detail some of the uh, uh, some some of the things that you write about, because I think that you really do provide a lot of great information that can be very helpful to people who aren't aren't focused uh, on the financial realm. So, uh, I, I just want to thank you so much, Lynn, for being with us, and uh, hopefully, we can do it again sometime. Yep. Thanks again for having me. You're welcome. All right, folks, well, uh, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because when we get back, Axel Merck will be with us. He's the President and Chief Investment Officer of Merck Investments, and he's the manager of the Merck Fund. So uh, Axel will certainly have some things to say about some of the same topics that we just talked to Lynn about. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Axel. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer flagship Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete a very active 200,000-meter drill program through to the year 2021. Stay up to date on what's been considered one of the best-performing exploration stocks in the last two years by visiting greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network. Work, work. The bottom line in business. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Time is Good Times. Uh, I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Axel Merck with us once again. He is the President and Chief Investment Officer of Merck Investments, Manager of Merck Funds, founder of the firm bearing his name, uh, and um, he is uh, really an expert on macro trends as well as an innovator in gold and currency investing, and we've certainly had Axel on this show in the past. He's well-known, frequently uh, seen on Bloomberg and CNBC and all the main uh, the main channels, the business channels. So it's uh, really good to have you back again. Thanks for joining me, Axel. Good to be with you. Um, we talked last week uh, about um, uh, some of your products, and, and you have a lot of other things that you, that you're involved with. That uh, besides the bullion, uh, the bullion account, uh, the bullion uh, product. But 
you also, ASA, Gold and Precious Metals Fund, it's been around for a long time, I believe. Uh, it is a closed-end fund that invests in, in uh, gold and silver mining companies, I guess, primarily, right? Yes, founded in 1958, yeah. And I had in mind that, uh, that it must have at one time owned a lot of the South African gold stocks. That's right, that's right. That, that was kind of how it got started in the beginning. You couldn't invest in many of these things in the U.S., and so that's where it had an origin. Indeed, it was a South African company. It was incorporated in South Africa, and um, it is one of the few foreign entities to date that trades as a closed-end fund in the U.S., and it was reincorporated in Bermuda beginning of the last decade. And so it's, it's a bit of an odd beast um, from that point of view, but um, we, we were awarded the management of that fund about a year ago in April last year, and uh, oh. we, we reshuffled the portfolio, changed quite a few things. I, I'm not around since 1958, just to make that clear, right? <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> and and, and we, we, there, there were some issues, notably on the cost side, um, and, and we gave this portfolio new life, so to speak, and it's a very different portfolio from, from how it was a year ago. Um. So I've noticed that it tends to sell under its net asset value and, and fairly significantly so. How do you, why is that the case? Well, first of all, uh, closed-end funds are not like ETFs that have a market. They, they, it does have a market maker, but since there is no creation and redemption, the last time the share issue, the fund issued shares was in 1958, um, there, there is no arbitrage opportunity, so to speak, and so many of these funds traded a discount. Um, ASA has traded a bigger discount than some, and one of the things that we have seen is when we outperform, the discount tends to get bigger. And uh, we've oh, tried to address that. Well, and, and similarly, in, in March, we were hit, as anybody else, uh, by, by, by the downdraft, especially since we've shifted the portfolio um, to be more assertive, we call it, more downstream. We've been helping to finance many of the small mining companies. And so we got whacked pretty badly, so to speak. And, and so at the bottom, the discount was low. Now that we're recovering, Covering and, and hopefully outperforming again, um, the discount has gotten a little bit wider. And, and we tried to address it through, through a bunch of things, including more communication. Also, we even have a Google ad campaign running to get new faces. Like the, the gold investor is an old investor. And I mentioned this once to, to Frank Holmes, um, who I'm sure has been a guest on your, your show. Sure, yes. And he uh-huh. says, well, the gold investor has always been old and will always be old. So let's say we want to get a new old investor, then, so to speak, new faces to look at that and and then particularly the closed end fund, we think it's a by helping to finance many of these projects, we think that they're this, this, this very odd and uh, archaic structure, so to speak, that's not so common anymore these days, uh, has a purpose. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so you actually, I mean, I'm looking at your portfolio and um, I noticed quite a few names, some of which I cover in my own newsletter. So you definitely are down market and so you so does the fund take uh, private placements or get involved in buying off the market or how does it how does it do it it gets into into companies that are developing projects that you've in your view uh, have great upside potential or, or what What's the pro- what's the so, philosophy? So so the so the mandate is to invest in, in precious metals companies, obviously, and uh, we we are, we have reasonable flexibility on how to do that. And as I indicated, we've gone downstream, away from the royalties, away from the big names, more to the smaller ones, um, mm-hmm. uh, development companies, some exploration plays. Most of these are, are public. And what happens a lot with these small gold miners because they're in notorious need of capital all the time. They buy yeah. a shell company, and so they have a Canadian listing, um, and and so when 
when you participate in one of these capital raises, they are, tend to be publicly traded. They, they sometimes issue warrants as well. There, may, there, there is a market, but not a very liquid market for some of these warrants. And, and so we don't do entirely private placements. We don't go that far downstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's certainly interesting. And I would, but it seems strange. Why would they... Why would the um, the difference between the NAV and the price get larger when you're when you're outperformed? Well, because the message has to sink through, right? I mean, for years oh. this fund has has been has been rather dull, to to phrase it politely, and yeah. and so the message has to get through about what this portfolio is, is all about, that it is more dynamic, and that it is, and and also as as you're aware, in the initial boost we've had in this segment, um, the the seniors kind of had the first leg up, right? That's sure. very common when you have a new bull market. And right. so the message has to get through that this is trickling through down there to these others. And, and so we are very confident and, and comfortable with, uh, with the positioning. But, um, uh, but with a closed-in fund, like with any other product, it's about communication, and that's, that's our job. So we've had some webinars, we, we do other things, and then we try to be very clear about what we do, and then over time that may attract the right sort of investor. Well, certainly, if you're a value investor, you look at something that's selling at uh, Donald 12, 15, 20 percent below NAV. Uh, you would think that's something you, you that would be attractive. So, uh, well, you know, you I, and I, think, I hear what you're saying. Now, that the big there's, guys. There's no guarantee that the discount is going to get get smaller, but yes, you do get them at a discount. Yeah. Well. Anyway, it's a it's a very interesting product that I hadn't uh, really been aware that you were involved with, and as you say, you just really took over it uh, fairly recently, within the last year or so, I guess, right? That's right. In April last year, now it took us. Uh, we we were involved for several months to to help streamline many of the things. The fund used to be internally managed, and uh, because of the the bear market in gold, the cost structure was just uh, got out of whack. And so we worked with the board to to put various best practices in place. It's not that they did bad things, but to modernize many of the things. And and mm-hmm. so and and uh, with that, I think it's a it's more of a traditional structure now. It's still a closed-in fund. It's still a it's still a Bermuda-based fund, and so from that point of view, it's a bit of an odd vehicle. Um, and so anybody who looks at it, please do go to our website and look at the disclosures because that does come with some quirks. Um, but at the same time, hey, we, we, we do like it. So the, the short of it is, uh, if you do buy it, you may want to hold it in a retirement account because otherwise um, you have some other tax issues that, that come some with it. Some other issues. Okay, product. good, good, good yeah. enough. Of course, uh, everybody should... Uh, talk to the tax accountant then, if that's the case. So, oh yeah. Uh, fair warnings there, I guess, and you're suggesting people go to the website. So, is it ASA if they just do a Google for ASA, or how do they find the it's website? A, it's asalimited.com. Asaltd.com. Yes. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, I want to I want to ask you get some of your thoughts on on the markets and the uh, the macroeconomic picture here. Uh, my goodness, it's certainly something different than we're used to. That's for sure. Um, recently on Bloomberg, I saw a clip you, you talked about inflation being one of the most underpriced risks. And that was on February 12th before the coronavirus really reared its ugly head in a major way anyway and shut everything down in the economy. And so, you know, at that time you noted that we were still having full employment. Well, I mean, employment has dropped off a cliff as, you're, as everybody's well aware of. Uh, now that that's taken place, uh, I mean, we just talked to our last guest and she was suggesting that in the near term, we could be looking at some real deflationary issues, though I think in the longer term, she thinks inflation is a real is a real risk. But what are your thoughts now? Because you made that statement, you know, February 12th, and I know very well uh, things were humming along pretty nicely and at that point in time. 
but now we're not at full employment. So what are your thoughts about the outlook for inflation or deflation as we go forward? Sure. Maybe uh, you mentioned a bunch of topics. First, for context, uh, the, I, the reason I had mentioned it is because we were pulling people from the sidelines and labor force while we were at record low unemployment. And I uh-huh. said, at some point, we're going to uh, kind of exhaust that pool of available labor. Now, we don't have that problem right now, except that uh, Powell says, hey, this worked so great last time around. I'm going to wait again before I tighten any policy because you see we can go very low and this is not going to be an issue. Um, and, of course, we've had some changes. But um, to just look at the kind of assuming at some point we'll recover from this, the sort of policies that have been put in place or are, are contemplated to be put in place may well be much more inflationary than the past. So we didn't have inflation last time. Even Bernanke is hedging his bet about how we're going to come out of this one. And, and, and the reason is that when you give, say, a corporate tax cut, as we had recently, well, that's inflationary in an indirect manner, right? It boosts the economy, boosts employment, and so forth. But when you do infrastructure spending or direct cash handouts to people who actually need the money, right? I mean, if the wealthy get wealthier, that, that doesn't mean they spend a lot more money. But if you give people who are desperate for cash more cash, they will spend it. And, mm-hmm. and so the, the sort of stimulus we, we, we are seeing and will see is more inflationary. And then just about talk about disinflationary environment right now, well, yes and no. I agree with that in principle, but I think we touched on it last week. When, when you have the CPI come out, now I know plenty of problem issue, people have issues with the CPI in general, but for last month, we know it was wrong. The CPI is supposed to measure the average consumption basket. And while nobody is average, we all know that nobody drove a car last month. And mm-hmm. so the, the, the weighting of, of, of gasoline is, is completely out of whack. And then conversely, of course, what everybody did use um, is, is go to the grocery stores. And that, those prices went up. And so we mm-hmm. had inflation last month, despite what the official numbers say. Um, overall, of course, yes, with all these efforts to keep everybody in business, which I guess there's a good reason to, um, we will overproduce many things, right? I mean, let's look at the automotive market. Um, anybody who lost a job is going to return the least car. We're going to have an abundance of used cars. So why mm-hmm. should, that's going to put a lid on, 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 the, on, on price pressures and cars. But, but inflation isn't something that comes uniformly. It pops up in different places, and suddenly it pops up in more and more places. And so I think that's, that's where we see a real risk at the, at the tail end of all of this. Yeah, it would uh, it would seem so. Helicopter money. I mean, it's the the propensity to consume is a it is at least one of the Keynesian ideas that uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. That when you put the money in the hands of people who are poor, and they need to put food in their table and they need to pay their rents, uh, that that's you know that they will do that. And if you give the money to a rich person, they'll probably put it in their bank account or or buy a stock or whatever. And we've seen, I would argue, tremendous amounts of inflation, but in the financial assets. Um, since 2008, before that too, you would agree with that, I guess, right? Oh yeah, sure, sure. You know, we just—I uh, mean, if the rich get richer, the people that don't have to uh, spend all their in- income on uh, on just simply living costs and can afford to buy uh, to buy some things, as hopefully a lot of people in this <laughs> listen to this show have enough to buy some gold and some uh, some assets and are doing okay. Uh, but uh, that propensity to consume. So we're going to your your friend out there. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, she's uh, from your district, I believe, probably, or right around San Francisco there somewhere. Well, she's suggesting <laughs> that everybody should have, what, $3,000 a month or 10000 or everybody should get $100,000 a month checks or what? I mean, 
So I would I would yes. think at some I mean, point it start to if, see if a hyper if you think about it, well, the money doesn't get you anywhere. That's the problem, right? If you spend, I, I, the last I heard was 2000 maybe we're at 3000 now, but $2,000 a month or at all, if you spend, people need a job. They don't need a handout, right? right. And so if you, if you spend $2,000 a person to have that person work safely, I think we could open up this economy in no time. Right, uh, and and by the way, they do it in much of the rest of the world, um, and they don't spend two thousand bucks a person, and 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 so I I'm I'm not suggesting we we shouldn't take precautions as we open up and whatnot, but but paying people to stay at home is hugely expensive, and is causing a lot of damage because as money doesn't quite grow on trees. Last time I checked, and 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 so it's a it's it's a waste of money. It just increases our debt. And uh, sure, for the time being, the, the markets are benign about it. Um, but and and fear not, our policymakers are able to to mess this up in any which way, right? And so we'll we'll just see what they cook up next. You know, we'll see how they mess things up next. Is the way you can put that. Axel, you have uh, quite a bit of of experience in the currency markets. And what is your view of the dollar now? Well, the dollar had been a beneficiary for numerous reasons of late because of the the panic trade. Um, there was because a lot of people borrow dollars abroad. They they scrambled to reduce the leverage, and just like in the short squeeze, um, there was a flight into the dollar. Um, mm-hmm. If I look at the markets right now, the the, the LIBOR market, the, the interbank borrowing market has has all but normalized in the meantime. And so, and and as we speak today, the the dollar is weakening. I think that's that's part. That's one one part of the trend. Um, the the next part is that on. Um, an election is coming up right now. The odds are that whatever constellation we'll have, as, as you've just pointed out, we'll be spending a boatload of money. So that may be inflationary when combined with a Fed that's not going to take assertive action against it. That may weaken the dollar. And then on a purchasing power basis, our analysis shows the dollar is about 20% overvalued. And so that's a downward trend. Now, that doesn't mean the dollar is going to go down every day. Um, indeed, just because it's expensive doesn't mean it can't get more expensive. But um, it, I fa- I, in my analysis, it favors a weaker dollar. And uh, intriguingly and interestingly, obviously gold appreciated versus the dollar. But other than that, the dollar had appreciated versus just about all currencies in, in recent months. What about um, the dollar's role as the world's reserve currency? Um, I, I want to run an idea past you and see what your response is. This is from Alistair McLeod, who is a frequent guest on this show, he argues that uh, if the dollar rates go negative, and I don't know if you think that's a possibility, do you believe that the, that the U.S., uh, that the Fed will, will push into negative territory with the treasuries? If you asked me some of these questions years ago, I would have said never on earth, right? Um, and, and now it's a little different. Now, the, the little dip in the, in, the, in the Fed Fund's futures market we saw recently, I, I think that that's more a numbers game because what happens usually with the market, let's say the Fed says, hey, rates are going to stay at 2%. And, and the market then believes they're not going to go higher, but they always have to price in the, the opportunity of a shock. And so the, the futures market tend to trade a little bit lower. And now the Fed funds futures are at five basis points, 0.05%. And so for a while, not today, but for a while, um, the, they priced in just slightly, slightly negative rates um, for, for next year. Um, and then obviously Powell said it's not going to happen. Um, and then right now it doesn't. So I, I don't think it makes any sense. I don't think the Fed is going there. But um, I'm never going to say never because in this, in this world, a lot of taboos have been broken. 
Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, a lot of things. I mean, 2008 seemed seemed extreme, but uh, now maybe we're looking at something even more extreme for sure. But, uh, but here's the idea that Alistair McLeod has run by on this show, and it makes it makes sense to me. He suggests that negative rates for the world's reserve currency is a, a bigger deal than, let's say, for the yen or the euro even. Uh, and and that's because of a concept of, of time preference, which I think you probably agree with. The idea that uh, you know whatever I own has some time preference to it. Having having it today is worth more than waiting a year or two or sometime into the future. And so, Alistair argues that if the U.S. dollar goes negative, uh, if rates go negative, why would foreigners want to own? Why would anybody want to own the dollar? when you can go out and buy gold and maybe get 1% or 2% on it, or at least the, you don't lose value of it on it, uh, holding it, or, or silver or copper or whatever else. So his suggestion is that if the U.S. dollar as a world's reserve currency goes negative, and since everything in the world, all these commodities are priced in dollars, who would hold the dollar any longer? I don't know what your thoughts are of that. Well, in, in, first of all, with regard to gold, gold doesn't have much of a correlation to most things. The, the one thing we do see a correlation with is real rates, notably on, on a 10-year uh-huh. basis. And, and so, and indeed, Japan actually has the highest real rates right now in, in the major countries here. Just Interesting. to show you how, yeah. how absurd this, this world is, right? Um, and, and so the, the nominal rate obviously is a factor in that. Now, you could have made similar, I, I, I think there's a risk of that, but you could have made similar arguments about the euro and other currencies. And uh, we invest around the globe in currencies, and uh, by mandate, we kind of have to hold something, right? Um, and if, you are, if you're the treasury department of a lo- large corporations, you've got to hold something. Um, as an individual, you can stuff it under the mattress. But a big S&P 500 company or a big British company or whatever, they've got to do something, and they're not in the gambling business, and so they, mm-hmm. they will, up to a degree, hold it, even if it's negative yielding. The bigger issue I see in the U.S. is that you have a money market fund industry um, where people are used to stable net asset value, and uh, that's very difficult to sustain um, when you have negative rates. And so it will break a fundamental pillars of, of the U.S. financial system, not that it means we'll, everything will break down, but there's a lot of damage that will be caused with negative rates in the U.S. You don't have those issues in, in the rest of the world as much because many of these markets are not as developed. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to think about there. I guess just with 30 seconds left, uh, so what should people be doing right now? Well, they, they should follow their process. I mean, in, in this sort of environment, um, it is easy to, to – the glasses are full one day and half empty the next day. Um, have a plan and stick to it. Only revise it if you think that you're really wrong, but, but not because you hear somebody else, including myself, say something else um, the, <laughs> today or tomorrow. Yeah. Well, there's one thing that we're, we're pretty sure of is that uh, over the long run, gold is money and it holds its value, and fiat currency – uh, contrary to that, loses value. We can. That's pretty predictable, aren't both of those statements pretty predictable? Paper money will sure, decline in sure. purchasing power and gold will not. If, if you have expenses tomorrow, the price of gold is volatile, right? So if you have a major expense tomorrow, there's a good yeah. reason to hold cash. Now, I happen to like gold, but um, I mean, you've seen how much gold has moved of late, right? And in the short term, it can do anything. I, I like it in, in the long in, Historically speaking, the gold has term. always done well. You never quite know why you hold it for tomorrow. I, I happen to like it, yes. 
Right. You hold it for tomorrow for insurance, for sure. All right. Well, thank you, Axel. Thank you so much for being with us. We're out of time. We'll look to do it again sometime in the near future, if you're willing. And so, folks, that is all for this week. Next week, Richard Mayberry is with me, along with Michael Oliver and Dr. Quentin Henning. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Oren Resources is an exploration company defined by its aggressive ambition to find the world's largest mines. Oren has raised over $100 million in this effort and believes it is on to three major discoveries at its projects in Canada and Peru. This year, Oren plans to drill Sombrero, where targets have analogous features to the 10th largest copper mine globally. The company also plans to drill its other substantial base and precious metal opportunities that management believes will be complemented by the strongest bull market in commodities over the last 50 years. Visit AURYNresources.com and subscribe to keep up with the busy year ahead.